Amen. Well, uh, today's parable is, uh, is one of those exciting ones that we kind of talked about, if you'll remember, or if you're just now joining us. Parables are these stories that Jesus would tell uh, to try to help us uh, understand things that maybe they're things that we've always kind of known about, uh, but he tells us this story to make us think about it in a different way, or he tells us these stories so that they kind of begin to interpret us, they go against our kind of life and the way that we look about it, and he also tells these stories to bring attention to the fact that the kingdom of God, uh, the rule and the reign, where, where God gets exactly what he wants, all of his peace, all of his mercy, all of his love, all of his compassion, the way he designed it, the kingdom of God is present, not just in spiritual things, but in this earth, that, that his prayer is that uh, on earth as it is in heaven, that the kingdom of God would be on this planet among uh, people like you and me. And today's parable is one of those that makes you think about it uh, quite a bit. I know there was a DNA group that spent a couple hours talking about it earlier this week, so that's, that's exciting. We'll see if uh, I'll do it less than a couple hours. It says this in uh, Luke chapter 16. It says, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And so he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account uh, for your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know that I'll, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors and he asked first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. And then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master, though, commended this dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people to the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is the parable, and this is God's word. It's a great one. I love it. Uh, Jesus tells this story. I'll just recap it for you. There's this guy whose job is to steward a rich man's property. And it's more than just, you know, like we have homes, little tiny homes, because uh, we live where we live, and we're just trying to manage them. And, and you might think, oh, yeah, that's managing a, a family budget or something. But back then, it would have been the entire enterprise, the entire ownership of this very rich man, all of his vineyards, all of his crops, all of the carpenters that worked underneath him, the, the blacksmiths, everything. It was a huge operation. And so really what he's done, this rich man, is he's hired a CEO to care for and to manage manage everything, to, to work with the employees, to work with the servants, to, to care for the whole deal. And what's happened is, is he's found out that he is actually, the, the rich man's found out that the steward, this manager, isn't doing a really great job. And so he calls him in and he says, hey, what's this that I hear about you wasting my stuff? He says, you're fired. So then the guy says, okay, what am I supposed to do? I'm too weak to do manual labor. He's like, look at my hands. They're artist hands or something like that. And then he says, and I'm too proud to beg on the streets. 
He's like, what else am I going to do? You know, where is it going to get out? Like, what, my resume is dead or whatnot? And so he decides, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go call all of my managers uh, or my owners, you know, debtors. And so he goes to the first. He says, how much do you owe? He says, 900 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot of olive oil. That's like four Costco's amount of olive oil. And he says, all right, instead of 900, write 450. Now that's all you owe. And then he goes to the next person. He says, I, you know, I have a thousand bushels of wheat. He says, okay, we'll write, cut that down to, to 800. And then this is the point where you would kind of expect something different to happen, where Jesus is going to now tell us, hey, don't be like this guy. Like what he's doing right now, not good. We might even think that what, what the story is going to be is that the master is like, oh, you should have been patient. I was about to forgive you. Or maybe the, 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 the manager was supposed to, you know, be remorseful and prayerful or dependent on God. And maybe he was like, oh, I lost my job, so I need to sit back and just kind of wait for something to happen. Or, or maybe this is about to be one of those parables where uh, Jesus kind of lavishes on top of them all of this grace and mercy. You know, the, the manager comes back and the owner's like, you know what, I've forgiven you for being so bad at your job and for going around my back and cutting all of these debts down. And instead, I'm going to throw a big party for you. And I'm, he's going to, you know, we know that story from last week, the prodigal said. We think maybe that's what the parable should go to next, right? That in spite of this guy's cutthroat and improper behavior, God's going to show him grace and mercy. But instead, uh, the shrewd manager or this streetwise guy becomes the hero. The master says, wow, he commends him. It's like he gives him an award. You've done a great thing. Everybody should look to you for advice. Like the way that you're living is the right, like what you've done is so good. I mean, what, right? Very confusing. What is there to appreciate about this person? What is it? Uh, you know, you're like, he costs his manager a fortune. You know, that's a lot of olive oil and wheat. Like, you could dip a lot of bread and a lot of olive oil with how much he just cut out. There's a lot of dealing. Now his manager has to, or the owner has to account for that. How is this guy a hero? This rascal, this scoundrel, this thief. How is he the hero? Uh, aren't Christian heroes uh, supposed to be martyrs or priests or prophets, right? They're supposed to be the spiritually mature uh, when did dealing wisely on the streets become part of the equation of walking and being a, a hero in the kingdom of God? Uh, how is he supposed to be our hero? Maybe even a little more deeper is how is Jesus saying this is one of his heroes, right? Like he's telling a story. It's like that's how we should be, Right? Like, nobody writes a script for Spider-Man, and then in the end is like, yeah, Spider-Man's not a good character. They think, well, Spider-Man's the hero of the movie, right? It's one of the things I'm most disappointed by now. Like, these Marvel movies, you don't know who the hero really is. But Jesus tells this story for the manager to be the hero. And I guess uh, today's sermon is really about deciding or figuring out or looking for clues and ways in which he actually is a hero and someone for us to follow. That's what it's about. The first clue or the first thing that I see is his urgency. 
I think Jesus looks, is telling this story about a person whose back is up against the wall, who's desperate. In that moment, he says, what am I going to do? Like, no one's going to hire me to dig ditches. Like, no one's going to give me money either. And he's desperate. He knows his own limitations. He begins to sense uh, that the time is fleeting, and he begins to put every effort he can into his survival, into his life. And I wonder uh, if being a citizen of the kingdom of God might mean uh, living with that urgency, knowing that your life has limits. Not just the abilities of your life has limits, but maybe living with this understanding that your days are limited, your years are limited, your survival is actually limited. That this person, he has this desire and drive and this sense that time is running out and he has this desperation even. You know, I, I often think about my own future and, and kind of decide, well, once my kids, you know, stop playing soccer and are easier to handle or something like that, then I'll become really serious around hosting and caring for people. That's when I'll really get into the kingdom of God. Sometime in the future, you know, when I'm old and I'm, I'm able to travel, then I'll go and I'll help the people that need helping. But right now, I've got to take care of these things, and I've got to watch the calendars tick by, the years go by and by. Each day, each year, I just need to be patient, because one day that time will come. You know, one day, I'll take hold of that kingdom calling, and I'll do it for reals. I'll, that's when I'm going to give it all. That's when I'll seek the kingdom. That's when I'll seek, seek his stuff here and now. But I think part of at least one clue about how this guy is a hero in the kingdom is that he is living with a desperation that something has to be done right now, that something has to happen today. And we ask questions here, and so I'm going to ask you a question to answer. What would you do if you sense that kind of your days are numbered, there's a finite amount of time and energy that can be spent? What are you going to seek? You know, the Ewan McGregor commercial during the Super Bowl was kind of cool, except he said, you know, you should travel to the beach. And it was a little disappointing because the beach he's traveling to is a beach we could all walk to. Uh, I don't know if you saw that one, but it's like, would, do you wish you would have bought more stuff when you die? No, you wish you would have traveled more. But this is a little different of a question. If the time is running out, if you have just a few more days to breathe, if you know you only have a few more seasons to live this life, what would you do? How would you live? Yeah, so you'd, you'd change your priority, you put relationships way up high. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. What else? I'd call a lawyer and get my stuff in order. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's a good side note, you know? You could write that down on a to-do list for trip. <laughs> get our will together later this week. Yeah, that's good. That's a good reminder for me. Yeah, that's good. What else? I think my discipline would go up a notch in like the certain things too. Mm. Like mm. Yeah, just like the things that make us spiritually, emotionally, physically healthy in life. I think like that would increase. 
yeah, you'd be like, now's the time to like, yeah, increase that discipline. Yeah, really seek the things that matter. Yeah. Yeah, anybody else? Yeah, that's good. Mm. Yeah. You'd appreciate each day, slow down. Like, oh, a sunrise. How many more of these am I going to get where it's as if the sun comes up and God says, I'm really happy. I'm fond of you. I did all this so you could see. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the carrot that's just dangling out in front of you, and you're going to say, wait, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to eat the grass right beneath my feet. Yeah. It's even, you know, I, this is the most financial advice I'll give straight and direct, but I don't know if you've noticed that inflation is way outpacing how much money you can save in your 401k. I don't know if you've, like, done that math. So you're basically every month where they're saying, you need to put money in your 401k so we can trade it in the stock market. What's happening is you're losing like half of that value each month because the inflation is going up so high. Not half, your inflation's 9%, you're only getting 4% back. So you're losing money, but they're telling you you've got to do that. You've got to put more in your bank account. You've got to have more stuff and more things. And all the while, you're just getting exhausted. Yeah, Jack London, uh, he wrote this book, To Build a Fire, and in it he says this. He says, the proper function of a person is to live, not to exist. And I wonder how much of us live our lives to exist, hoping that we stay and that it happens instead of to live and to pursue abundant life, to, to Nate's point. And so I think that the urgency that this steward has, this manager has, is the urgency of the kingdom. And I think part of what Jesus is saying is, let's not just exist, but let's live. And let's live with an urgency that the kingdom of God is now and here, and we can go after it and seek it. Let's seek the kingdom, and we'll find the kingdom now. But I also think that he's commending him for his street smarts, that he was clever, that he solved the problem. Uh, he even says it really clearly in verse 8. He says he commends the dishonest manager, which I love he throws it out that he is dishonest, because he acted shrewdly. He acted within the street smarts of understanding how people work, and he solved the problem with himself. Uh, and I think that wisdom, as we talk about it in the church often, or kingdom values, as we describe, uh, is not just book smarts. Maybe. Maybe it's not just having a spiritual intelligence. I think there's a subtle seduction that exists uh, in how we approach this life with God and how we compare ourselves to others, you know, in this wonderful company of saints. We might think things like, she prays so well and for so long. She must really understand Jesus. Or he knows deep theological truths. He really knows stuff. 
I think he even knows how many books are in the Bible. He must get the kingdom of God. Where she speaks so eloquently and so personally about the the life of Jesus, she must truly get it. And while all of those things, being able to pray and to talk with God and talk about God, that's all really important stuff. Like we we should know the books of the Bible. That kind of intelligence is good. But we might confuse all of this with thinking that the kingdom of God uh, is the spiritual realm uh, where the, the true values are just sort of those, those soft sciences, where we could sort of split ourselves up with our daily lives and the street smarts and how things operate here. And then there's this cloud where we kind of hover up and we think spiritual thoughts. And that the Christian life is about just doing both at once, Right? Uh, just like that new TV show, Severance, right? You just split your life up. You have a life down here, and then you have a life up here in the cloud. This division of the secular and the sacred, um, it it lends itself to making us think that uh, at work, what you can do with the spiritual life is maybe be kind to people, have good character, Maybe sometimes when, you're, uh, when the Zoom call is going long, you can throw in some Jesus talk or some spiritual things. Uh, but then the physical work, the problems that you solve, the skills that you bring into your life and to your job, that's just not important. That stuff is just a means to an end because we all have to survive and buy food and buy uh, housing and all of that stuff. And so that's, that work is for that. Those skills that you develop, that your parents teach you, that you learn in school, that you learn just on the streets of life, that stuff, like God's not really concerned with that. He's only concerned with this other cloud space. But Jesus holds this person up and he says that it's his street smarts, his everyday problem solving that makes him so valuable that we should all emulate. He even goes on to tell us that, you know, I wish more people that were following me were like this guy because the people of the light, they don't get it. And I wonder how much of us actually get it, but we split it up. Uh, Eugene Peterson, he, uh, in his uh, translation of this passage in the message, says it so nicely, uh, I think. He says, streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They're on constant alert looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right, using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials. See, the kingdom values intelligence beyond academia. It it actually values, the kingdom values people who know how to fix things, people that know how to make deals, People know know how to develop a project from its conception to its completion. Uh, People that know how to work with other human beings and get the most out of them. People that know how to make flower arrangements or how to maximize things or how to code things or how to design, how to engineer. He's saying the kingdom, it's not just that we need that for some sort of financial statement, but the kingdom desires and wants that kind of street smarts. And one of the things that I find so uh, challenging about this concept of the street smarts and the spiritual life and all of those things is I think sometimes we imagine that there's this adjacent path, like that that on one side of the path, in the ditch, if you will, there's the the kingdom calling that you have, 
And then on the others, there's the, the stuff that you do in life, your, your occupation and all of those other roles. But what he's describing here is that, that it's not uh, these adjacent callings, but that all of that stuff, your abilities, your skills, the way you see the world, all of those things, that happens through your calling, not separately. And I want to ask another question, and this is going to be super awkward. So you ready for an awkward question? So the first one, I just want to see who's most, most proud or self-aware maybe. What's something that you actually know how to do in this world? And if you feel like, man, that's just, that's just a test. Brad's trying to see who's arrogant here. Then the next question you could answer is, what's something that somebody else here is really good at in this world? I just want to I just wanted to talk about how we actually have skills besides setting up chairs and sitting in here. All right, Josh. It can't be about me. Next. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to help a company hire well. Yeah. To retain, to identify, uh, evaluate, select, performance manage great talents so they can hit their business goals. Nice. So you know how to help companies add people into their organization so that they can thrive and that they can go. And it's the right people. That's what is so street smart. I mean, I guess I'll go because once he hires them, I generally am pretty good at helping them get up to speed at all the things he's trying to get them to do. So I can build like a, a training program or something that actually helps them hit those goals like a couple months after the hire. Yeah. So Josh hires the right people. Yeah. And then Jeff, in a separate company, which I think is funny, is helping those people figure out how to do the job and become the best they can be at it. And then I'm going to make sure Jeff eats and has space for some quiet time while also helping raise his daughter. I like it. You're good at that. You know, it's, there's a parable later where Jesus holds up the nagging person and says, I want people to be more naggy. And I'm not saying that's how you do it, Alicia, but, you know, we do need that kingdom smarts, too, of, like, remember to eat and sleep. Yeah, Matt. Oh. <laughs> you know how, to, that's perfect. Yeah, what else? We don't have to go in a full circle. There's a whole generation of people in Culver City who know how to push with their fingers and make beautiful sounds that are supposed to be together. That's pretty amazing. And I guess she's branched out to North Carolina. And that is a skill in the kingdom. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the party throwers. Frequent, frequent party throwers. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, retweet. <laughs> yes. If you've never seen him walk around a room figuring out how to put the wires everywhere, then you're really missing out. <laughs> yeah. And we also have so many artists. Like, uh, Ali does video editing and wine and is, like, an amazing photographer. And Gerald and other Jared do amazing visual <laughs> effects. I'm, like, Casey's looking. <laughs> 
so good. <laughs> it's good stuff. Yeah, anybody else dying to say what you're really good at or somebody else is really good at? You like this? <laughs> very true. <laughs> it's so good. And one of the things that I want to emphasize now, because that's so true, and that's just tip of the iceberg of the skills and the abilities and, the, and truly the street smarts of knowing how, how to accomplish any of those things requires all of this know-how. And what Jesus is saying in this parable, at least part of it, is uh, that these are not just skills to, to bring into the church. Like, we could think about all of those things. Like, they're definitely welcome. Like, Josh helps us with our hiring process. Jer- Jeff uses those skills, too, and how to bring people up to speed or keep me on speed, something like that. But he's not saying, hey, this is such good stuff, so bring it into the church. Like, you're now our church volunteers of those things. Do art and do dance, but do it here. No, Jesus is saying that these things are good, not because they have to be played out in the church, but because they're getting played out on earth as it is in heaven. That heaven on earth is building companies. Heaven on earth is serving food and drink and developing the systems so that people can do that. Heaven on earth is in the theater as we create and do things. Uh, Nancy Piercy, uh, you guys know that I really like her. She's so smart. She says this. She says, having a Christian worldview means being utterly convinced that the biblical story is not only true, but also works better in the grit and the grime of the real world. And this is one of, you know, 3,000 sentences she has on this exact topic where she's describing the fact that the biblical story is not just true for like, when we die, where do we go? But it's true in every part of culture and everything that we do. And to be a believer in Jesus and to believe that story of redemption and restoration means that we think that that is the best story at the engineering firm. We believe that that's the best story in our uh, restaurants that we work at, the best story at our tech firm, the best story at our law firms. Like, that's what we believe, and that it actually is not just a, a, a good story, but it's the best story for the grit and the grime of the real world. And that's true for you. Then the last sort of clue that I think about is that Jesus uh, uses these words. He says, I tell you the truth, Uh, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends. At the end of all of that, he says, use your wealth to make friends. And what the manager does, his whole strategy for his own life and survival is to use all the resources, all the abilities, all the position that he has to make better friends. He understands that finances are fleeting And he places all of his bets for the future on relationships. And this is key. He doesn't forsake all of his resources in exchange for relationships. He doesn't say, ah, I don't need that stuff anymore. I'm going to abandon it all, my abilities, my skills, my, my smarts, so that I can have friends. What he does is he leverages everything that he has to make friends. Isn't that pretty great? All of his status, all of his position is all just for relational development. 
Jesus goes on as he's talking to them to talk about how you cannot love both God and money. If you're dishonest in a little, you're going to be dishonest with a lot. If you're untrustworthy in a little, you'll be untrustworthy in a lot. But at the core of all of it that he's talking about is you have to. What this steward does so well is he leverages everything to make friends, to build relationships, to view people as the actual currency, the the relating that you do with another human being as the actual treasure and that everything else just gets used for that. Uh, This is the great burden of living life in this city because our city's creeds and the things that we believe and the way that this city operates is that relationships are just commodities, that we relate to people so that we can use the people, not because they're humans, that people themselves are products, products to, to sell and then people to sell to. That our neighbors, the people that we live around, are our competitors. Uh, Earlier this week, Mirella and I were just lamenting of the millions of people in this city that silently live from childhood to elderly age, feeling as though and being reminded that they do not matter except for what they can produce. That you do not matter except for how well you can perform. And if you don't measure up, see you later. The church in every missional community that we have, we stand in resistance to the currents that say lives don't matter. We stand as a community, as a church, and we say all humans are worthy, that souls are worth knowing, that relationship for relationship's sake is a beautiful endeavor, that we're willing to leverage our homes and our careers and our knowledge and our professions and all of our money. We're willing to leverage it all for being known and knowing other people, for the sake of knowing and relating to others. You know, why do we welcome people into our missional communities? Why do we pursue people that don't want to be in our communities? I mean, that's a really strange thing that we do. I don't know if you've noticed. People that have no interest in being in relationship with us, we pursue them. Why is that? Because humanity matters. Because people matter. Their pain, their story, their heartache, their very nature, it's all worthy. We're relational beings. And what Jesus says here is this manager is a hero because he uses all of his street smarts with an urgency to make friends, to be in relationships. If you've been entrusted with a little, you know, he says, but you don't, if you're not trustworthy with a little, why would I give you a lot? And I think we can look through that and say, well, we better take care of our homes really well. Make sure our cars are always clean, which I think those those are important things. But I think what he's really talking about is if if you've been given some resources and you're not leveraging it for the sake of relationship, then why would you be given more and more and more? Leverage everything that you have for the sake of relationships. The last, very last things that I will say is that Kingdoms reflect their kings. That's true all across the world. It's true of all history past, history present. The kingdoms of this world reflect the kings or the queens or the presidents or the prime minister. Their character, their traits, the things that they value, the way that they operate, that gets like trickled down and that's the way that they rule and that's the way that those countries operate. Even 
this is really dorky, but Holland uh, the, or the Netherlands, depending on how you want to describe it, they always wear orange when they play soccer, even though orange is not one of their colors in their flags. The reason they do it is one of their first rulers' name was orange. How weird is that? Kingdoms reflect their kings. And Jesus' kingdom values urgency because Jesus is filled with an urgency to set captives free. Why does the kingdom value this dependent, urgent, like time is running out, we must go and, rest- and restore? It's because Jesus is that way. His constant pursuit of abundant life and to, to give abundant light to everyone else, it's who he is, so his kingdom is the same way. Jesus' kingdom values everyday knowledge and know-how because he wants to redeem every part of society. His kingdom is earthy. Uh, His kingdom is among us in the everyday things because he hasn't sequestered himself to a prayer closet or a cathedral. But Jesus himself, he emptied the whole treasure troves of heaven, dedicated his whole life to being on this earth with us. Jesus' kingdom values relationship and the using of all resources for the sake of relationship because he, as the king, has entered this world and used all that he is to die to make enemies his friends. Isn't that good? To make orphans his children, to make widows his bride, to make refugees his citizens. He's done it all. That's what, what, what's happening on the cross is Jesus surrendering every resource, every status, all that he is, dying on the cross so that we could be raised to a life with him. That's what the whole doctrine of unity with Christ is all about, that he is willing to put it all down to bring us into it. This is the kingdom, and it reflects our king. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the ordinary things of life that teach us about you. We thank you that um, you call us and beckon us to a life uh, with proper priorities. Uh, We have so much skills and talents and know-how in this church. Uh, I pray that we would leverage it all for your kingdom, Uh, that that everything that we do and everything that we are would be put um, into order around you as the king, the good, gracious king that's brought us in, and that we're no longer enemies, but that we're your friends. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.